This episode, I'm joined once again by Maurizio Loza to discuss magic, advertising, and his new documentary, Eros Unchained. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast and keep it running indefinitely, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Maurizio Loza, thanks very much for joining us once again on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you, James, for having me. Uh, we're going to be discussing um, a documentary which has been released released in Spanish. Yes. Yes. Um, called Eros Unchained, um, but it does have English sub uh, subtitles. And I was sort of, I was given a, I should say, I was given a VIP access to watch the whole thing for free. So thanks very much. Um, and this is a documentary, really, the, the two other conversations we've had about your own book and then about... Uh, Ion Culiano's book Eros and Magic in the Renaissance this is a documentary really following that and it's described as a documentary about the influence of magic on advertising and the media so we're back in this realm of magic um, beneath advertising media and media and desire and ideas around this all really beginning with a very secure foundation from Renaissance magic with figures such as Giordano Bruno. Um, but yeah, I guess before we jump in with these big ideas, just tell us about how this documentary uh, came about. And, you know, I know it's currently in Spanish and available in Spanish. Why is it available? And also it's going to be uh, English audio soon as well, right? Uh, yes, we think so. We're still working on that, but yeah, it should be in English. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so, so um, you were asking me uh, how was it that it yeah how did came it to be? how did it came to be okay um, all right so that that was kind of a fortunate coincidence because I published the Hans of Actian uh, the book the one of the books the documentary is based in uh, in June 2020 in the middle of the worst of the pandemic and I uploaded the introduction to academia.edu uh, to let people know that it was out. And in September of that year, I received a message from Gabriel Garcia, who is a Spanish uh, designer and director who had read the introduction. And he was very interested in uh, reading the whole book because he wanted to make a small documentary, something like 20 minutes long for his YouTube channel, uh, which is called Culto TV. And it turns out that he had been reading Johan Culliano and many of the other authors uh, I had read while researching for the book. And so after reading the book, The Hands of Action, he told me that he, you know, we should collaborate uh, writing the script for the documentary. So being a designer myself and having seen his work, which is just amazing and knowing how difficult it is to uh, someone will ever want to translate your book into an audiovisual format, we started working. And um, after some three or four months, I think, of writing, we had some three hours worth of material. And so we were thinking, should we make a feature film or a series? And after some deliberation, we decided to go with the series. First, because we really uh, liked the material we had and we didn't want to, you know, cut it down to half an hour or to, to an hour and a half or something like that and, you know, risk um, washing it down. So we went with a series which draws mostly from archive and stock images and also features some great animations montage by Gabriel. So that's how it, it came to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, I said that the, the documentary is of what the series is about the influence of magic and on advertising in the media. I mean, how would you describe the the trajectory of the series? Uh, well, it is it is that we wanted to give a full account of how magic, erotic magic, 
influenced um, not only advertising, but also public relations. Uh, but to do that, we needed to actually tell the story from the beginning. So the first two chapters are actually kind of a, uh, were made to explain the magical context in which advertising can be conceptualized as magic. And then from the third chapter onwards, we see the history of how magic transforms into some other disciplines, right? Uh, during the 17th and 18th centuries, and then it comes to be psychoanalysis. It, it touches psychoanalysis and becomes advertising, and then it influences the whole thing. So that was kind of the trajectory of the whole series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And would you say, I guess you mentioned there erotic magic, would you say that that's the, that's the pretty much, you know, I guess what's, uh, there's a few questions there, but what's the difference between normal magic and erotic magic? And why does it have to be, what is it, does, it, does it have to be er- erotic magic for advertising? Uh, well, you know, we, we could say that all sorts of magic are erotic in a sense. They are if they resort to desire. But the sort of magic that advertising draws on historically is erotic. And the reason is because, you know, uh, advertising is really based on manipulating erotic or manipulating desires. It doesn't have to be erotic in, in, a, in a strict sense, like mm. sexual, right? Mm. But they do have to incite people and they have to cultivate desire. And to do that, well, unconsciously, they resorted to using some magical techniques that were developed back in the Renaissance, right? They were refined in the Renaissance because they had been developed, you know, uh, in a long time, you know, in the last 2000 years or even more. Mm. So that is why I think we should say that it's erotic magic that influenced um, advertising and, and PR. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I guess maybe later on we'll touch on that sort of uh, the libido force of when it moves from magic to psychoanalysis. But you mentioned two thousand years. I mean, do you where do you trace these back to? Do you have is it is it? I guess I'm assuming two thousand years ago. It gets fairly vague. I mean, do you see a strict starting point where where the the what becomes Renaissance magic begins? Well, I'd say that it probably starts with Empedocles, Mm. you know, his idea of the, well, this is kind of funny because his idea of the four elements branches off into magic and into, into science, right? So we have both materialist science uh, fork from that and also magic. But I would say that Empedocles is like the natural starting point for that. And at that time, you know, uh, what we now call philosophers, such as Empedocles or Heraclitus or well, all those guys, they were actually uh, more akin to what we will call a magician or a shaman, actually. So, so yeah, I think that's kind of the start, the logical starting point. Do you think philosophers these days are still touching on magic, probably without realizing it? That we made. philosophers in general. So oh, I mean, I mean well, you know, looking back, a lot of them would have been priests, shamans, as you say, or, or their equivalent mm-hmm. of priests. You know, one of the things that comes across in this work and in your work in general is that we're entering into a time as you move from like strictly, I guess you you know we now call that philosophy, but as you just said, Empedocles and Heraclitus, it's like philosophy, magic. It's a it, it, the context is so different. That it's a whole mm-hmm. different thing. Then you move into more strictly magic with like Bruno, and then you move into psychoanalysis, and it's like almost with people like Edward Bernays, you move into an era where it's like you're doing magic, but you don't realize it. So it's almost like my question would be, you know, how how many people in in these academic fields might very well be 
casting something out, doing some magic without really yeah. uh, noticing it? Well, I think you know most of us do in a sense, and it's if we if we uh, manipulate things, manipulating desire, we are doing magic. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the sense of philosophers, the thing what happened is this, and and, and this also applies to science, is that um, when you know a society moved along, you know, the centuries, you know, as it developed, uh, we tend to think that this societal process. Uh, overcomes certain phases, right? And we might think that we have overcome magic and religion, but we never actually overcome. It's, it's kind of what happens with a person. You never overcome things. You actually either use them or you repress them. That's mm. kind of the kind of the idea. So what happened is that our society, our civilization, repressed magic and religion, and there are many layers of repressed magic. Right. And we resort to those constantly, but do, we do it in other terms so that we never know that we're actually doing it, but we are doing it. And many, you know, even even some uh, strains of materialists thought are thinking magically or are resorting to some immaterial essence in the end because they can't quite figure out how to do it materially. Mm. Right. So this happens everywhere, I think. But uh, we are not, um, you know, that. Um, we're not that uh, able to to accept it, I think, because we are used to telling ourselves this story in which we have overcome this modes of uh, interaction. So these these sort of magical repressions, you see them definitely coming through. But do you think we've we've masked them in such a sense that um, you know the the institutions and our our habits of the way we do things are religions are magical, but we've created a sort of hegemony or language hegemony which consistently denies it but they really are they follow all the yeah. same structures and forms well I, I wouldn't say everything is a religion or either magic but i would say that there are many things that we are not used to thinking about magic that it is for example one of the most outstanding of uh, those things could be marxism for example marxism and i'm sure marxists will not agree with me and they will be like really taken aback by the idea but uh being materialists themselves but uh i think that for example marxism could be uh conceptualized as a gnostic religion right mm. you you can you can think about the proletariat as the elect right and they have this special knowledge they have this knowledge that is called dialectic materialism that will reveal the true nature of history right mm. and because they have this knowledge they know how things are going to go and they know what they have to do to to have things go their way right mm. so it's kind of a religious idea but it's you know it's uh masked in this rationalist and materialist way of seeing things from all your from all your research do you think human beings generally need that and without it we get a bit lost mm. Well, like that, I, that, that that structure in general, not Marxism. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> I think that, well, it's not that we need it. I think in a current situation, we do need it. I mean, as civilized beings, but this type of civilization, you know, responds to a very limited, well, not limited, to a very specific set of circumstances that is started back in the Neolithic. So, you know, having that into consideration, I think that in this sense, we do need religion. But I think if we think in terms of nomadic cultures, they are not religious in the sense in the same sense we are. They are more magical, but not religious. So, you know, they would structure things differently, I think. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I guess I guess drawing in the series, one one key element, and we've drawn on this in our other talks. There probably will be some overlap, of course, but the soul, the soul, really is the central element, and even even just the symbol of the soul. And it seems, you know, in asking that question about whether or not we need the structure, it's it's all these symbols which maybe like Jung would say they're you know down in the collective unconscious like you, they're there whether you like it or not they're here the soul is still here um what do you think really it's a peculiar question actually what do you think happens to the soul when we do did we sort of try and find a way to deny it in the way we have in the modern world do you think that it ends up a bit I don't know I, I guess a bit uh drawn off in the wrong direction it, it, you lose control of the soul really Mm, yes, you do. I think, well, as with anything you repress, it uh, eventually gets out of control. It will, it will, you know, lose its moorings and it will uh, start doing things it's not supposed to do, which is actually what Jung thought that was happening in, during the First World War. You know, the, the German psyche had been repressed for so long that it was reacting in those ways. Right. So I do think that the soul responds in that sense. But, you know, the soul is a really uh, kind of abstract construct for us to think of, mm. especially being modern human beings. So we can so we can think in this terms. But what is exactly the soul? So that, you know, that complicates the whole issue, I think. But still, I do think that if we repress, I mean, anything we repress, it will come back, you know, in full force, trying to let us know that we shouldn't be doing this and that, you know, there is a different way of doing things and of being. Mm. So on a societal level, in terms of repressing magic at the moment, uh, or this general magical repression or religious impression or spiritual repression. Mm, No, 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 go ahead. I was, I was simply going to ask, you know, how do you, do you, do you see that? How do you see that coming back full force in, in the, I guess in the near future? Uh, yeah, probably. What, what I think is that we have manipulated magic, uh, well, secular magic or advertising magic, let's call it, in such a way that we might be uh, going to be impacted really bad from from you know from doing all the spells. And we, oh, I think, we're going to go into that later on. But uh, yes, I think we will see consequences from our way of relating to magic and a way of repressing magic and using it in for other ends. Mm-hmm. You mentioned spells there. I mean, could you give an example of a, a secular spell? You know, what, a, um, a common secular spell? Well, advertising is a spell. That was, well, I studied graphic design. I think I told you this. Mm. And, um, well, I was always trying to understand what I was actually doing when designing a, a piece of design, right? Mm-hmm. When, you know, when advertising, whatever, I was always trying to pin down what was it what, that I was doing and why did it work beyond, you know, certain visual parameters. And this can only be explained in magical terms, right? Mm-hmm. You can only explain this, you know, as a, as a, as kind of suggestions that transcend the material and and get in touch with something deep inside the person and affect the person, right? That is magic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you use it as a symbol, uh, for example, logo, right? Mm-hmm. You are using kind of a sigil, right? That's that's kind of the idea. That's the way I saw it originally, and then I started developing the idea that advertising was magic in that sense. 
Mm-hmm. So there's a certain form of deconstruction. I mean, there's a certain point there of if I put the right words or even just images on this piece of paper and put it in front of someone's face, something is happening in the them as an individual apprehending this random collection, well, not random, but co- collection of images I've put here. And that mm-hmm. there is something that is then caused in in the symbolic realm in a peculiar way, which causes them to go, I need this thing, or I want to do that thing, or I now believe this thing, or I now desire this thing. All of I, I think about this a lot. I think about, you know, there's this task, there's this exercise, and I can't remember in what spiritual book it's in, but it's like you look around your room and you look at each thing and then you say, you, you, you try to trace it back to the fact that there was a point where the desire for that random object began. Because at a certain point, mm-hmm. most of the things that I look around my room, I go, I didn't actually, I never need, knew I needed them, right? At some point. So something mm-hmm. had to happen to cause, do you consider the thing that's caused a lack, like an anxiety, or is it more of a positive thing that it's like, it's not necessarily a lack, it's more like the person mm-hmm. wants to do something? Well, I think in the case of advertising, most of the time is a lack because we, you know, most of the things we own, apart from the essentials, we don't need. We don't actually need. We need really little to live. But we are, um, you know, uh, we were born and we grew in the society, which is constantly instilling desire to get us to consume more. Mm. So I think we, and it's not actually a true lack. It's not something you actually lack, but it's something that you are made to be lacking, right? Until you you really believe it and you start buying thinking, okay, I really need this. I have mm-hmm. to have this. But most of the things we have, I think we don't actually need. We're just, we just buying them because, hey, either someone else we admire has it or we need it, you know, to, to you know, for appearances, for show. So that might be the reason why it works so well. But it's, I think, a manipulation essentially. Mm. Do you think on a magical level, the lack is ever fulfilled or do you think that... Uh this form of magic is always trying to keep the door open. It keeps the door open, but I think the, well, the main thing to keep in mind here is that capitalism and essentially capitalist desire is infinite. I mean, when the economy was based on on need, right? Mm-hmm. You know, needs are easily satisfiable and are limited, but desire, you can desire whatever. They can make you desire whatever, and you'll keep desiring more if they manipulate you correctly. So as we switched from an economy of need to an economy of desire, we went into this dynamic where we'll always and always will be desiring more and more and more, right? So it's never ending, I think. Do you think we're getting to the point where we desire desire? Uh, well, matter desire. Yeah. Well, maybe. Well, I, I don't think we need capitalism to, to desire that. But uh, yes, we could be desiring for desiring itself, for desire itself. Yeah. So in the sense that you consider it manipulation, is there something, you know, for something to be manipulated, it almost presupposes that there was something which is was itself before and was doing perfectly fine so in the sense that advertising manipulates us what is this thing that we have that's you know i mean maybe some philosophers would say authentic or like the real self or the essence what's this thing that's getting manipulated manipulated yeah 
well, in magical terms, I would say it's the pneuma, right? The soul or the spirit. But uh, I do think there is a psychological unity that is slowly destroyed as we are, as we grow up and begin an education. And this, you know, the features in this uh, destroyed unity is what uh, manipulators and magicians and operators use to get in and and insert desires and whatnot. I think that's kind of the way it, it works, well, the way I imagine it work. Are others are our five senses the the obviously they're the primary route, but is there other routes in? Um, well, there could be, you know, in in strict in the terms of erotic magic, in strict terms, they go through the senses. Magical spells go through the senses, but there are many other ways to manipulate that magically, right? Mm. You can you can do it without the other person, no one or ever seeing or hearing anything about you, but it's not the case of erotic magic, right? It's funny now I think about it, though, in terms of the five senses and how powerful advertising is and how much advertisers want the money, right, which is, seems to be the strange end goal of all this manipulation, that actually they limit themselves pretty much to two senses to sell things, sight and sound. Yeah. Do, you, do, you, do you see a future where adverts might be some things we feel? I mean, so, for uh... instance, the reason that seems peculiar to me is it's fairly commonly known that, like, you smell something, that's the most most powerful sense in terms of nostalgia memory mm-hmm. feeling do you think that could be the next the next step for advertisers is to start? i i think they're actually doing that already i think they're selling really? uh yes i i read this a couple of months ago i think they were using pheromones to sell fragrances right so they're trying to manipulate you mm. in a very basic level they're trying to go to your actual to actually hormonal desire to make you want something so they i think they can they can um use other senses to get into that it's it's more difficult to go into touch and smell but i still think they may be going in that direction yes Mm. Mm. doesn't surprise me but i guess one thing that's almost i find somewhat pessimistic um not about your work but about the underlying thing is like um Throughout all of time, so many people have tried, especially psychologists in the modern era, from Freud onwards, have tried to like... So Freud was very focused, of course, on the sexual nature of things. And originally he had the libido, then that moves through to mm-hmm. the Oedipal complex. But it but it usually has this basis in the father and the mother and this... this it's quite a sexual psychology in a way. I don't know if you'd agree with that. But then you move through to Jung and he, he's sort of saying, well, it's not a, as sexual as you're making it out to be. We move into this realm of myth and archetypes. And then like Adler moves through to um, more character analysis and much more mod- um, more modern types of psychology seem to be a bit lot more Ad- Adlerian. And then Reich, he stays with the libido. But it, the, the thing mm-hmm. I find so pessimistic is that human nature just hasn't really budged an inch in these 2000 years it, it's still the, the this this seemingly extremely modern phenomena of advertising of images on a on a modern screen is jumping right back to the most primitive desire of mating of sexual tension yeah. of and it doesn't it's it's do you, i mean do you <laughs> Do you find that? Do you find that pessimistic? Do you find that sort of? I don't know. In a way, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't say it's pessimistic. I think it's the way human beings operate. You know, 
you know, in a sense, we're animals, mm. and being animals, we respond to very uh, particular uh, interests and instincts, right? Mm. So if the, you know if someone learns to manipulate you your instincts, uh, they will get a long way doing that, I think. So I, I don't think it's pessimistic. I think it's realistic, actually, because um, well, it's not that we never advance we do advance in a sense we but we are in this context in this civilization we are tied to certain parameters that may not be that easy to let go of so i think that's actually what's going on mm -hmm. so before the advent of advertising of course you know in bruno's day there probably would have been some would have been forms of advertising in Giordano bruno's day mm -hmm. but it wouldn't have been as prolific as it is now not even close but Prior to that, in terms of this this long history of what's going on here, I mean, where did this magic find its place in the world before it was used primarily for manipulation? Was it mm -hmm. used perhaps in a more holistic, wholesome sense? Uh, yes. Well, for Renaissance magicians, you know, for people really dedicated, devoted to magic, it was a, a way of life. But magic had many applications in daily life. You know, casting spells was a valued work uh in any village you know they had the magician had the witch people that were specialized in doing you know and in getting you what you wanted you can you can get you know that person that won't pay attention to you you can get them to pay attention to you to fall in love with you you know for a price so there was an application there was a there has always been a practical application of magic because it's always about manipulation but it was never this generalized and it was never this systemic in the sense that it permeated the whole economic system and and you know it became the the uh, core of it right mm. i like that idea of you know in the renaissance you go to this magician obviously this is a bit rough and ready but you go to this magician mm -hmm. you want someone to fall in love with you pay the price and that seems very primitive that seems almost quite manipulative on, on the surface you, mm -hmm. you know coercive in a way but actually it's one of those, it's a very clear example of how we haven't changed that all that much because here's an advert for, you know, sex appeal fragrance or <laughs> the latest fashion to make yourself, yeah. um, you know, more attractive. attractive yeah, yeah, more attractive. And so in that sense, these things become basically sigils for a, you know, you see that, you go buy the thing, that lack is fulfilled. In that sense, you are mm -hmm. unknowingly casting some sort of um, manifestation. Of your future mm -hmm. would you agree with that mm, yes yes i would i think it's a you know i think the way you pictured it is a very is a very uh you know like um hands-on approach i i like it but uh well i mean you isolated it it's a lot more complicated mm. so it's not a, well your idea seems to be that it's not only us who are being manipulated but we are also manipulating we are also casting i mean when we use that fragrance that makes you more attractive we are also casting a spell so that makes things a lot more complicated i think <laughs> but that i mean that is a that is a really good way of seeing it because it is actually what happens and you know we humans are always manipulating from the cradle we are you know we always want to get what we want that's human nature the thing is how we go about and do it and if we harm people or if we don't or if we if, or if we set up this oppressive system to keep to keep everyone buying right but uh yeah i think you know manipulation either uh institutionalized or in a person is kind of a part of human nature mm. of needing or being in the world 
It makes me think and uh, of a book by Michel Serre, which is actually just on the shelf there, which is why I saw it and I thought the same thing. So he wrote this book, Le Parasite, The Parasite, which is basically about the idea, sort of like, in a way, it, it has a lot of similarities with the word of manipulation, where we in have inherently this understanding of the word manipulation and the word parasite as bad things, right? Parasites are these things you don't want in you. But Serre mm. puts forward the philosophy of, well, like the cow is a parasite on the grass, and then the grass is like the gut is then a parasite on the grass, and then, you know, the cow craps on the grass but then the crap is now a parasite on the grass but the grass actually needs that so everything is it's just parasites all the way down so it's like you know that mm -hmm. and, and the sense you're talking about manipulation is well if you think about manipulation in in like the etymological sense of just the basic meaning of it it's just changing something mm -hmm. to fit your own preference mm -hmm. of it so right. But the, so the, the problem then, I guess, arises, if you're in agreement with what I put forward there, the problem arises when someone basically starts to draw out a box and finds a bit more power than everyone else and begins to mm -hmm. manipulate the whole world to their vision. And this is sort of Bruno's theory as well, right, that the people who have the power to truly manipulate a lot of people, these need to be virtuous, good people. And it's not necessarily a bad mm -hmm. thing, yeah. but you need to make sure that they are... The equivalent of sort of a priestly mm -hmm. class. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah, the problem arises when, as you said, uh, a group of people find the way to manipulate people to rid them of, of something, right? to rob mm -hmm. them of something, uh, which is their will. I mean, you. I mean, you're doing that constantly in your in your daily life. You try to get things. You try to get people to do things for you, right? That is normal. But if you do that to rob them of their will and make them do your bidding, then we are going into a, you know, we're getting we're getting into an ethical problem, right? And this is what happened, what went out of control with advertising is that you deny people their will because you are constantly bombarding them with images and slogans and logos that make them think that they really need this when they don't. That's I think the the problem with it mm. so it's put forward by quite a lot of thinkers that the will is really like the will and attention so the will actually is a uh, attention is a function of the will and like in a way the more attentive mm. you are the you know the more yeah quite literally just attentive of where you're being pulled where you're being drawn um mm -hmm. is a function of the will and in that sense advertising is very clear they're just constantly as long as they've got your attention you don't really have that chance to take take a look take the third position yeah. and say hang on like you know and they do it in very malicious ways of course in terms of the illusion of choice is one of the worst ones in terms of like you think mm -hmm. we, we've made you think you're free by having the the eco brand of whatever it is um now mm -hmm. one it's probably going to be quite a peculiar question but this is something that i'm absolutely fascinated by um and then it comes up in thinkers such as Gurdjieff and steiner and i'm not sure if you'd have read the, their work on this but it's the idea that eventually the will can be ground down to such an extent that you're no longer really left with a human being. You've got this sort of machine, Gurdjieff would say a machine. Hmm. Stein actually says that eventually technology, uh, and we can include advertising in there in terms of the progress of advertising technology, will eventually sort of grind down humans to become these sort of just automatons who are drifting around. I mean, in your research in this Renaissance style of magic with this soul in the central place, do you think it could ever be that humans are ground down to become puppets? Um, yeah, well, I think 
Well, it depends on you, ask. I think it was Gurdjieff or Spensky who said that we were actually asleep. I don't remember which of the two said that. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, if we are asleep, we're not in control. We are kind of a puppet, mm -hmm. right? But uh, I mean, you could characterize the situation as that. So for some people, I mean, the more radical you are, you will see, you will understand that as that. I don't think we are there yet. We are very close to becoming automatons in the sense that, um, as you said, attention and will are connected. And the more scattered we are, right, the more automatic-like we become. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and and everything in commercial culture is set to induce this state in which you are completely scattered. Mm -hmm. I think Stephen Talbot, um, an American writer, he calls it the scattered self. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when everything is set up so you can never be centered, when there is a myriad of stimuli tugging and pulling at you constantly, there is no way that you can find out what you want and who you really are. Mm -hmm. That is really complicated. So we take the short route, which is, like, okay, we decide we are this, we go this way, and we try to maintain our integrity. I think that's what actually happens. So I, one one really great thing of your documentary, just to draw on this notion of attention, of will, of regaining something, is it's pretty optimistic. Like you're trying to keep it optimistic in the sense of mm -hmm. drawing in how can there still be this radical freedom in the face of this manipulation? And so... Mm -hmm. How can there be this? How can we still have freedom in the face of all of this? Well, I, I don't think, I wouldn't say radical freedom. It's, it's uh, what we can do is we can take responsibility of ourselves, I think. You know, if you are scattered, what you can do is you can center yourself, is you can actually pay attention to what you're doing. And uh, uh, they call this mindfulness these mm -hmm. days, I think. It's a self-help technique. Uh, they use it also for... Uh, corporate development and whatnot, but it's actually just paying attention to what you do. There's this short by uh, Guzman Sant. Uh, it's based on a short story by William Burroughs. It's called Do Easy. And the only thing that Burroughs said, you know, does is pay attention to what he's actually doing. That's the way of centering himself. So this is kind of Zen dishwashing. You just pay attention, complete, complete attention to what you're doing, and that that way you return to yourself. But you know, I think this kind of technique is what you have to do to center yourself in a world in which you'll be constantly, um, constantly menaced, you know, threatened by stimuli that won't get you anywhere. I think this is the kind of responsible you responsibility you have to take. Mm. And if you don't focus on that, whereabouts are you? Everywhere and nowhere at the same time, I think you become you become a scattered and you become liable. You know, you become kind of a victim. You become prey for a myriad of, of spells coming from anywhere. So I do think it's important. I mean, it's not like you dissolve. It's not like you're ground down as you as you say it. But you lose unity, right? You lose your individuality while you think you are retaining your individuality because you are consuming this or that brand, mm -hmm. which is, you know, an incredible trick. Mm -hmm. If you do this or you do that, you'll be like this and people will perceive you like this. But actually, there won't be anything like behind you, within you, just that illusion that you project everyone else, right? It's really masterful in that sense. So you've, you've been hypnotized, but you've also hypnotized... 
there's a there's an idea because hypnosis and somnambulism come up in your documentary and there's an idea that mm-hmm. all hypnotists will tell you is all hypnosis is self-hypnosis like you sort of have to believe it but at the same time if the advertising if the magic is potent enough it's almost almost out of your control to not believe it because it's mm-hmm. you've, you've been embroiled in this culture of um advertising as it is so it the, the irony is it's like you're being hypnotized you're hypnotizing yourself but because you also believe it, other people also believe it. And it's this, it's almost like a culture where you want to get a pin and it, the whole thing would begin to fall apart if one one piece of belief stopped. And it makes everything seem very mm-hmm. fragile. Do you think in a certain way uh, to try attend to this freedom, it's almost like if we all attended to it all at once, it would be too much. We can't, we need to keep, retain some of this structure, even if it is manipulative, because to remove it all at once, so many people would be left with nothing. Well, I, I never thought about it like that. Sure, it could it could happen in that sense. Well, in, in that way you're describing. But, you know, that's why I didn't think we haven't had such a, a rough and massive awakening. I mean, even people who know what is going on, or who know or actually think that this is the way it's going on, we can actually say that this is the way it is. But... You know, we can't do much about it. We can write a book, we can make a documentary, we can be mindful of our habits. But, you know, beyond that, it's really difficult to really liberate yourself, mm-hmm. right? Let alone massively to, to from this kind of thing. So I think, you know, it's really difficult to get out of that situation. It's really difficult to to break the spell because we are too invested. Our whole lives are invested on it, in it. So I think that's kind of the problem why people won't go away from this scheme. It offers them too much. It offers them a life, a living, right? Mm-hmm. You, I mean, if you realize and you act accordingly, you lose your whole self or what you think is yourself at least, even if it isn't. Mm-hmm. Do you think everyone has the possibilities to wake up? To free themselves? Mm, yeah, I would like to think so. I don't know if, if anyone if everyone does. I I mean, being optimistic, I would like to think that most people do have the potential to do it. And I think, you know, the main thing that's keeping us back is fear, probably. Mm. It's fear of losing ourselves because we don't know ourselves in any different way. It's like fear of change, really. This is massive change, but any change produces fear. So this would produce mass fear, you know, massive fear. It's interesting. Something I'm reading about Wilhelm Reich actually at the moment. I don't know. I told you I was mm. going to bring him in. He actually says that the the one of the things he would always emphasize to his his patients in terms of change, because his change was happening on a level that was in spite of them. So instead of working mm-hmm. primarily with the talking cure and there was this conscious level of things at least happening and trying to understand the past, the bodily, you know, with the bodily functions, retaining this unconscious tensions and then doing certain exercises and what and most of it happened while you slept um, in spite of you, he would say the ultimate element was courage because if you're changing as a character, what he called character uh, character analysis. If you're changing on your character level on a very real level, you're going to experience a lot because, well, quite literally, you're changing. Um, so there has to be this odd courage. Um, now, this brings me to, I guess, the sort of 
a contrarian point is what role do you think you know as as you do see these connections between renaissance magic psychoanalysis you know character studies the way people's selves and egos what role do you see modern therapy playing do you think it's bolstering the uh, the magic Hmm. Well, I, I, it depends on what kind of therapy you're thinking of. And if you, if you're thinking of like corporate seminars for, uh, productivity, yes, it is fostering the magic, but, uh, I think there are still legitimate, uh, forms of therapy, Reikin being when you style being two of those, well, I, I haven't studied, but, uh, well, in a sense, what has happened is that uh, the establishment, the magical establishment, let's, let's call it that way, has co-opted um, this forms of, you know, we can we can conceptualize uh, therapy as magic, right? Because it operates mm-hmm. on the images of the soul and whatnot, right? So what they're doing is they are co-opting this forms of magic to bolster their own their own performance. So yes, it is happening, but still think that you can do that. There are forms of therapy that are not uh, meant to to uh, give those results see this is the most malicious thing i see i think in terms of this sort of self-created labyrinth of you know if you if you put it very simply you have someone who perhaps at some point realizes life isn't all that great they want to do something they want to exit like gurdjieff says you need to realize you're in a prison before you can escape then they realize they're in a prison and i think the most malicious thing is when that's all been co-opted and even multiple exits have been made mm-hmm. by magicians as well you know what we might call magicians and so you end up trapped in a like a multi-exit labyrinth where everything is already created for you and i think capitalism does this perfectly right so like if you don't mm-hmm. like normal culture well it's like there's the alternative culture and then there's the even more alternative culture and fringe culture right but they they all mm-hmm. end up sort of flat yes yes totally and i think you know for some people, the, the moment when they realize about this comes about either with a crisis or with disease. If you're really ill, if you begin to to feel the impact of these things in your body, of your living, of the way of living um, in your body, you maybe you'll realize you are in trouble and you will want to do something and you'll start searching. So maybe disease in this sense is a blessing and start and will you know, put you on your way to realizing and doing things about your life, you know, trying to get get out of the, you know, the whole scheme. You mean a literal disease? Yep. Yeah, it could be. I mean, imagine how hard it, it can be to, uh, you know, get cancer or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, how scared can you be? This could be enough to hold you out of your uh, paralysis and get you moving and get you doing things to make your life better. Well, I've seen it happen a couple of times. It doesn't always happen. But, you know, a good life crisis can do that as well. Do you think you... you have you seen more people fall back because the they can't deal with it? You know, the comf- they need the comfort. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think it happens every day. Even, you know, I think that's a normal experience. We're constantly... I mean, I try to do this mindfulness experiments all day, but I can I can keep that the whole day. I need to think while I'm doing things, you know. So, so uh, you you constantly slip and and fall and get up, you know. Is that is that kind of relationship? I think. Mm-hmm. So, alongside you know being mindful, what else do you suggest? Because I know 
as I said, you, you, you really are trying to push this idea that maybe not to go search it out yourself or that there is going to be this, as you know, I said radical freedom, not radical freedom, but um, there is still the possibility of pulling back the veil. So you just keep attentive. Yes, keep attentive and keep and keep uh, non-scattered. Keep yourself unified in the sense that try to, you know, know these are my parameters. This is the way. It's kind of it's kind of like drawing the line, mm. right? These things I go for. This I won't go for. You have to draw a line and you have to keep at it to to not let in all that you know the barrage of stimuli and and all the spells in. That's kind of the thing you should do. So to ask you a really big question, big philosophical question, in the sense that we've been manipulated um, and in the sense that our desires aren't really our own and in the sense that then you begin to pull back this veil or look towards something more real, um, what does that real thing look like? Is it just, is the real really just the method you approach things? You know, am I being sincere with myself? Am I actually being honest? Or do you think there's something more? Uh, well, I wouldn't have an idea because I've never seen it. That's that's kind of the thing. Is like you have this aspiration mm. of um, making things better because you feel them. You feel they're not that good, mm. but you know, knowing what's going to happen, knowing where you're heading. I mean, I get the sense that I'm going somewhere good, right? It has to be better, but I don't know what it actually looks like. So it depends on what author you base yourself. For, for example, if you take Reich, we were talking about him a while ago. You know, this kind of unity would look like, um, uh, how could I put it? Would look like something, you know, like you've been integrated with your body mm. and this would bring you health, right? Mm -hmm. You'd be healthy and you'd be integrated psychologically and bodily. Mm. So that I think it's kind of a really uh rational aspiration you think we're we're disconnected capitalism and this this form of magic also makes us disconnected from our bodies mm, yeah totally i think so it, it, well whatever whatever makes you more you know whatever this centers you will disconnect you from your body in one or another sense yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hmm. well we haven't i haven't really touched on too many of the the bigger the bigger theme themes of your of the documentary i mean is there anything about the documentary specifically that you wanted to add in that's maybe a bit different from our other two talks um well there is a feature of capitalist magic of uh, media magic mm -hmm. that i would like to stress on and it's the capacity its capacity to actually create uh demiurgic bubbles of reality right different realities Mm -hmm. And we see this everywhere these days. Any any magic spell can do that at a, a you know at a person wide level. But if you take like what's happening in in with the war in Ukraine right now, you can see a gigantic demiurgic bubble develop in Russia, right? Mm -hmm. So millions of people right now in Russia are convinced because of the Russian state media that there is no war going on in Ukraine. It's a special military operation, mm -hmm. right? Well, this is getting increasingly difficult to sustain. But, you know, the idea is to keep, the idea, Putin's idea is to get people to believe that version of reality, or what they call now the narrative, right? So they live in a different reality from the West, 
right? And not to say that we are right and we are we were selling a version of the of reality, right? But when we have two realities confronted, there is no way to reconcile, right? Mm-hmm. There's no way to reconcile. I mean, there is there isn't even a way to understand each other, mm-hmm. and that I think is really dangerous. It it I think it actually classifies an, as an existential risk mm-hmm. because a war could break out, a bigger war could even break out, and there would be no way to stop it because there is no way to relate at a basic level. We wouldn't have any common reality, right, to negotiate. So in that sense, I think that that capacity, that capitalist capacity is really, really dangerous. You think that's why wars break out generally is because ultimately it's two things, two realities which just mm-hmm. have made themselves incompatible with each other. In a sense, yes, but this, I mean, the example I just gave with Ukraine, I think is really a sign of the times, right? The way, how we can manipulate and create independent realities and even like continent-wide realities. That is that is really scary. There is always a misunderstanding, but there used to be common ground, right? Mm. I mean, both parties used to be grounded and and agree on the same things. Nowadays, I think, well, more often than not, things will will tend to slip into we don't have any common ground, right? So confrontations will be total. And I would, I would assume that individuals are within multiple demiurgic bubbles of these sorts. Sure. I mean, take, for example, uh, well, they didn't, call it, they didn't call it a demiurgic bubble, but a filter bubble, oh, right? Yeah. In, a, in a social network, right? You only see, I mean, they feed back to you the things you have already seen. So you only see this kind of material, mm-hmm. right? And this is actually how Trump uh, won the elections in 2016. He manipulated this, this really filter, this really tiny filter bubbles, right? Uh, to his advantage, and he managed it. I mean, he was able to sway the vote in swing states, and he actually did it. Hmm. What happens when those bubbles burst? Well, either they build themselves up again, in the sense that people just won't realize what happened and they'll just get to it again, or people realize it and try to do something. But the result of that option is not guaranteed. I mean, anything goes either. I mean, you realize, maybe you realize, but uh, can you act? Mm. That's that's the thing. Can you act on it? That is really, really difficult, I think. And we don't tend to like vacuums. So it might be as a one bubble bursts, you yeah. find yourself drawn, quickly drawn to, what, to another. Uh, yeah, whatever yes. the next safest place is to be. You find this yeah. in the left-right distinction, right? Well, you're either this or that, this or that. And there's mm. no, uh, yeah. Hmm. Totally. Mm-hmm. Well, take for example, um, well, what you mentioned made me think of QAnon, and as this had to begin as a tiny bubble, right? You know, a small group of people that were into this idea, and then it just blew up to incredible proportions. So there you have another instance of a modern phenomenon that is actually kind of like religion, right? Mm-hmm. You get and it's actually Gnostic as well. You get uh, blind belief. You get a figure-like uh, person, which, curiously enough, is Trump. You get Q, that is actually disseminating the message, like Gnosis, with his, with his messages, right? Mm-hmm. And when you have all this together, you have like, it's like 
seeing new religion being born and and developing uh, in front of our eyes. It's really it's really amazing in a sense. But this starts from a tiny bubble. I mean, someone thought it was a good idea. Someone, and I think a disaffected person thought, "Hey, this guy's right." I think I think that's the way. I think that's what's going on. So I'll go with it. And he says that to next person, and just grows from that. Mm. So it can get really, you know, out of control. What do you think the future holds for this kind of magic? Well, I'm not optimistic about that. <laughs> I think <clears throat> no. I think that it. You know, first of all, I don't think that capitalism will ever stop on its own. Right. So. Given that we are on a finite planet with finite resources, if we keep on stimulating desire, right, indiscriminately, mm. what will happen is we will either, we will bring, well, not either. I think this is what's going to go on. I may be wrong, but we are going to bring on an eco econo cataclysm, right? It will be both ways. It would be probably start ecologically and then it will go, it will feed back into the economy. And when these things go together, you have a you have an apocalypse, right? Mm. You have the common down of civilization. So, well, this is my doomer mentality going. But um I do think that in that sense, capitalist spells will take care of, of themselves, mm. right? It's kind of like that. It cannot accelerate eternally. It and if it does, I would be surprised that it can be kept at that level continually. Mm. So I think that's the that's the reason it will probably collapse. So maybe it's not in our hands, right? We just have to keep on doing what we're doing, just need to keep on consuming and it will eventually break. Maybe. I think so. Uh, the only the only the only way the only way it has out of it is some sort of space interstellar resource acquisition. If we stay on yeah. this, if we stay on this but that's not looking likely. If we stay on this planet then yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement with you, but that's not going to be pretty. Magic, oh, no. so magic mm -hmm. will eventually eat itself. Well, this kind of magic will eventually eat itself. Yeah, yeah, and eat the whole system with it. Mm. Yeah. And then probably we'll all start again anyway. Well, we'll have to, I think. Well, whoever is left. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a bit of a bleak ending. But whereabouts can we find your documentary? Okay, it's in Vimeo. Uh, we put it there. It's um. Well, we put a price of 10 euros for it. So it's six chapters and some uh, three hours worth of material there. So um, I think you know, people will enjoy it if they are interested in magic and advertising. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I'll be sure to put the uh, links in the description below. And um, are you are you working on any more magic and advertising material or...? Is, are you... uh, we are working with Gabriel in a, in a new documentary, but it doesn't have to do with magic per se. It's mm -hmm. more of a story that uh, um, talks about uh, hyperstition, for one, uh, simulation theory also. And, um, you know, it's trying to, to weave a story around those concepts. That's what we're working on right now. Sounds very interesting. Can't wait to watch it. Um, yep. But yeah, it seems like a good place to finish up. Uh, Maurizio Loza, once again, thanks very much. Okay. Thank you, James.